Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. Today, we have three leading figures in the fight for human rights, Amal Clooney, Jeffrey Robertson and Bill Browder, discussing how to fight human rights violations in the 21st century and expand on the nascent but very effective Magnitsky laws that have come into effect in countries like Britain, America and Canada. It's a really fascinating conversation based on the themes of Jeffrey Robertson's new book, Bad People and How to Be Rid of Them. And if you do enjoy it, you can find a link for Jeffrey's book in the podcast description. But before we go to this week's episode, I wanted to let you know about a new podcast we think you'll really enjoy. It's called Climate Solutions from our partners at the European Investment Bank. What would you give up to solve the climate crisis? Well, the EIB surveyed 30,000 people in every EU country, China, the US and the UK to find out what they're ready to do to fight climate change. The team at Climate Solutions then spoke to experts about what it all means for the future of our planet. To find out more and subscribe to this podcast, visit eib.org slash podcasts or subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, let's go to the episode. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to this book launch and discussion hosted by Doughty Street Chambers uh, in partnership with Intelligence Squared. Uh, it's fantastic to have so many people attending this evening and no doubt he'll be watching later. And we're all here to discuss Jeffrey Robertson's latest book, a memorably entitled Bad People and How to Be Rid of Them, A Plan B for Human Rights. It's yet another amazing book by an author who firstly is able to publish, uh, write and publish books so quickly that it puts other authors to shame, but also who is able to uh, bring the law to life so vividly and memorably, and who not only diagnoses problems, but offers solutions. So in this latest work, he describes how since the day of the judgment at Nuremberg, which was the day he was born, an international criminal court has been plan A for combating human rights abuses. But that since this has faltered, we should think about plan B. And in his view, plan B is a system of targeted sanctions, sometimes known as Magnitsky sanctions, against uh, the worst violators around the world. So he really needs no introduction. But um, as many of you know, Jeffrey Robertson is the founder and the head of Doughty Street Chambers. He is the former president of the UN War Crimes Court for Sierra Leone. He's the author of Crimes Against Humanity, the book that was a big inspiration for the global justice movement when it came out. Uh, and he's the author of a memoir, also memorably uh, entitled Rather His Own Man in Court with Tyrants, Tarts and Troublemakers. So let's start by hearing more from Jeffrey about his book, and then we'll hear from his fellow a panelist, Bill Browder, who has been lobbying for such 
uh, sanctions since his lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, was murdered after exposing large-scale corruption in Russia. And then we're going to have some questions. So, Jeffrey, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Thanks, everyone, for coming to discuss a way forward for deterring human rights abuses. When I started to write this book, as we went into lockdown last year, there wasn't much news about sanctions. Hardly anyone had heard of the name Magnitsky. But just one year later, there are 31 countries with Magnitsky laws, with Australia and Japan likely to follow. Sanctions are in the headlines, imposed on Lukashenko's apparatchiks, the persecutors of Navalny, Myanmar generals, and the organisers of China's cultural genocide against the Uyghurs. In this book, I've tried to make some sense of these developments, asking whether targeted sanctions work and how they can work better, how they can be coordinated to serve as a sort of plan B. Now that plan A, the International Criminal Court and the Security Council's responsibility to protect, have faded the Security Council being hopelessly poleaxed. And perhaps the overarching question to emerge after the pandemic in a world where there are now more autocracies than democracies Can an alliance of what H.G. Wells once called parliamentary peoples do something to deter the cruelty and the corruption that attaches in authoritarian regimes? Well, punishing human rights violators goes right back to the judgment at Nuremberg and to its opening, crimes against international law. The judges said, are committed by men, not by abstract entities, and only by punishing individuals can the provisions of international law be enforced. As Amal has mentioned, I was actually born on the day of the Nuremberg judgment. As the judges came in, I came out. But uh, I'm a sort of living museum piece as to whether the legacy has been really carried out, carried through. So uh, we have, shortly after the judgment at Nuremberg, Article 1 of the UN Charter to promote respect for human rights and fundamental freedoms, the job of the Security Council. And very soon, by 1949, we had that great triptych the Universal Declaration, the Convention Against Genocide, and the Geneva Conventions for Treatment of Prisoners of War. And in the years that followed, there came the good conventions against torture and apartheid, race and sex discrimination, mistreatment of children, as someone said, contemplating the killing fields of Rwanda. The road to hell is paved with good conventions because they never had any enforcement mechanism attached. There was no court or tribunal to direct and to punish the perpetrators of precisely the kind of inhumane conduct that they condemned. There was a terrible genocide in 1970 Three million Bangladeshis were killed by the Pakistani army. No one except George Harrison seemed to care. That was the time I joined Amnesty International, and all we could do was to write these groveling letters. Dear Your Highness Idi Amin, VC and Bar. Dear Your Excellency General Pinochet. And uh, those were the days when... Families, victims' families could only hope that the perpetrators would go to the fires of hell. And that wasn't a deterrent for perpetrators who didn't believe in God, or worse, believed that God was on their side. But at the end of the 20th century, we caught up with General Pinochet. He'd come to London to take tea with Mrs. Thatcher, and was in fact whiskey. 
but uh, he was arrested on an extradition warrant from Spain for torture. And by that stage, the end of the 20th century, we had the torturers of the Balkans on trial at a post-Nuremberg court, and then the genocide heirs from Rwanda. And that, those courts worked well enough for 123 nations to ratify the statute of the International Criminal Court that started in 2002. But here we are, 18 years later, that court has convicted just a few mid-Central African warlords. It has not lived up to the expectations that it aroused. What went wrong? Essentially, the opposition of the three big powers with veto powers on the Security Council, China and Russia, of course, and also the United States. I think one of the saddest memories I have in the human rights field is the demonstrators in Damascus in 2011 holding up those big banners, Assad to the Hague, well, before the machine guns opened fire and uh, 400,000 and counting were killed. So what... uh, The false expectations were a result of Russia needing a seaport on the Mediterranean, and so it vetoes every attempt, and the UK has made a few, to refer Syria to the ICC prosecutor, who Trump then banned from going to the United Nations in America because she was investigating United States war crimes in Afghanistan. Alma Assad shops on the internet from the fashion houses in Paris. But you get the picture. The ICC is powerless to act against any country which has an alliance with a great power. What else is there? The United Nations has a Human Rights Committee and a Convention on Torture with the Tribunal, and they have protocols that allow individual complaints. There are two problems. Firstly, countries that torture don't usually sign the protocols. And if they do, they don't regard them as binding. In 2018, the Human Rights Committee made a very important order against Brazil to allow Lula to stand for president. His conviction hadn't been confirmed. It's now been quashed. And uh, he was well ahead of Bolsonaro in the polls. Brazil refused. Your ruling is not binding, it said, and he was disqualified. Well, 300,000 coronavirus deaths later and a deforested Amazon, perhaps they now regret that. Well, what else is there? Diplomatic sanctions, yes. Whenever Russia assassinates someone in England, Litvinenko, the scripple attempt, oh, we punish them. Oh, yes, we do. We expel four or five of their diplomats. And then Moscow, a couple of days later, reacts by expelling exactly the same number of our diplomats. It's a tit-for-tat game left over from the Cold War, and it accomplishes absolutely nothing. So we need a plan B. We can't think, since Iraq, of going to war. Regime change is no longer contemplatable. International law doesn't work simply because it's unenforceable without Security Council unanimity. The only law that is enforceable is national law. And if enough nations combine, then this may have some effect. Targeted sanctions on human rights grounds began against apartheid and Iraq on the country basis. They were country sanctions. And, of course, they impoverished the people. What, I suppose, targeted sanctions really began with the terrorist financier sanctions that came in after 9-11. 
they did seem to have considerable effect, the lists of terrorist finances, which the United Nations promulgated. Well, let me come to Sergei Magnitsky. He wasn't a dissident. He was a tax lawyer working in Moscow for Bill Browder's companies. He discovered that they'd been ripped off, used by crooked policemen and tax officials for a scam that netted them $230 million. Not Bill's money, but public money. Well, he blew the whistle, and he was arrested and jailed by the very people that he exposed. And although increasingly ill, he was denied bail by cruel judges and eventually beaten to death by a security squad. Think George Floyd, but with no one watching. Well, Bill was determined to avenge his lawyer's death. He went to Congress, enlisted John McCain and some powerful Democrats, and in 2012, the first Magnitsky Act was passed with sanctions on 16 of those responsible for Sergei's death, including three judges and two prison doctors. Putin called a press conference the next day to announce that Sergei had died from a heart attack and then, in reprisal, passed a law to stop Americans from fostering Russian orphans. This was a cruel, indeed a puerile, form of revenge. Handicapped kids had for years been adopted by Americans who arranged for them to have the operations they needed. But it showed how stung he was by sanctions initiatives. The same kind of playground reaction that came from China last week, proposing sanctions on Helena Kennedy and other critics in retaliation for the UK listing of some middle-ranking organisers of the Uyghur camps. The US fortunately went further, sanctioned the Politburo chief responsible and the Chinese corporation that sells the slave labour cotton. That's why China is so furious. Xinjiang sells one-fifth of the world's cotton, and as a result of the naming and shaming, fashion brands in the West are refusing to buy it. Labels like Nike and Burberry have all declared that they're not going to source slave labour cotton in future. Hugo Boss says it will, but since Hugo Boss made uniforms for the concentration camp guards, then I guess it's just following the firm's tradition. Well, the first Magnitsky Act was signed by Obama in 2012. It applied only to Russia. But he followed it with the Global Magnitsky Act in 2016, and Canada followed with its Magnitsky Act in 2017. The UK introduced its Magnitsky regulations eight months ago, and the EU, which had been promising for 10 years, finally stepped up to the plate in December, three months ago. It didn't use the name Magnitsky for fear of upsetting Russia. Well, much of the lobbying has come, actually, from oppositionists in Russia. Boris Nemtsov before his assassination, said that if the UK wants to stop Putin from poisoning his enemies in Britain, it should stop his oligarch friends from sending their children to Eden. Similar point was made by Alex Navalny last year. Stop, let bring in the European Magnitsky Act, stop the corrupt oligarchs from mooring their super yachts in Monaco, make them sail to the beautiful harbours of Belarus, which is, of course, landlocked. Magnitsky sanctions are national laws. They take the form, at the moment, of visa bans and of asset freezes. They should go further, attaching to family members who could not go to schools or universities or private hospitals in the West, I know we don't like to visit the sins of the fathers on the children, but for a father who's committed a crime against humanity, it seems fair enough. I remember years ago having to 
interview a terribly corrupt man, a cruel man, who had been caught selling guns to the Midland cartel. He was an Israeli general, and he shuffled up to me after the cross-examination and said, please don't name me in your report. I only did it for my family. Well, I think it's not unreasonable to remove that incentive. Magnitsky laws are particularly useful to strike at enablers. I call the train drivers to Auschwitz, like Lickspittle judges and doctors who assist at torture sessions. These middle-class professionals do like to go to international conferences, take the family on trips to Europe. They don't like professional obloquy. But in order to shame them, they must be named. Journalists reporting on repressive trials in Russia and Hong Kong usually don't mention the name of the judge. They have to learn to do so. Remember that judge who was wheeled in to convict Alex Navalny for not attending a meeting with his probation officer when the whole world knew that he was in a Berlin hospital recovering from Novichok? The papers didn't report her name. It was Judge Natalia Repnikova. If there isn't a special circle in hell for politically corrupt judges, there are now at least Magnitsky lists, and her name should be on every one of them. But target section laws are so far unevolved. The main problem is that they depend on governments, on executive fiat, a decision by, here, the Foreign Secretary and the Foreign Office, taken without any consultation with NGOs or with any independent adjudication. In the US, at least, human rights organisations are invited to nominate targets and submit evidence, not in Britain, where secrecy is the order of the day, nor in the EU. And there's a danger, I've detected this in some US listings, that decisions will be made in the interests of foreign policy and not of human rights. There's a very good report from the Australian Parliamentary Committee that recommended a Magnitsky law for that country that it should be triggered by a committee of human rights experts that would hold public hearings and nominate to the foreign minister who is appropriate for sanctioning. The International Bar Association, chaired by Lord Neuberger, had a committee in which Amal, I think, was on, which recommended something similar. We must take the process out of the hands of diplomats who prioritise trade over human rights and bring independent expertise to bear. Well, there's also the unaddressed problem of providing due process. It makes no sense to have a law protecting human rights which actually infringes upon them. The burden of proof is low. Credible evidence is all that's needed. Well, proof should be on the balance of probabilities and targets should have some way of demonstrating that their listing was mistaken. It may not be used very often, but a merits review should at least be available. So now... All of a sudden, we have a system by which democracies can identify and penalise those individuals and companies so far removed from their values as to commit crimes against humanity or engage in serious corruption. Where do we go from here? 31 countries, but they're all part of the West, what I would call the White West. It's important, I think, to bring other parliamentary peoples into the network. Parliament of Japan is considering whether to join. It would be important to bring in countries of the Commonwealth, like India and Singapore. Indeed, why not all 123 countries that have ratified the International Criminal Court? They should not logically support, not as an alternative, but as an addition, while the ICC falters the Magnitsky movement, it may be that the prosecutor can start talking to Magnitsky groups about 
taking up sanctions against those he can't prosecute because he doesn't have the evidence beyond reasonable doubt, but who are probably guilty of human rights violations. And if sanctions laws are to become part of the fight for liberal democracy, let's remember 92 countries are autocracies with 54% of the world's population living in or living under them, uh, then obviously it's time to coordinate the movement, to coordinate targeting so that all Magnitsky laws point at the same people and envisage a future society where, or a future world, where open societies use the powers of their national laws to club together, draw up perhaps a convention, or at least an agreement, by which they close their borders, their banks, their shops, their hospitals, their schools, and their other desired institutions to outsiders responsible for human rights abuses and serious corruption. And they prosecute any of their own nationals caught busting these sanctions. Must the United States have a leadership role? In one sense, that's inevitable. The dollar is the basic currency of global business. It's difficult to do it in the face of sanctions from the U.S. Treasury. No bank can take you as a client, as Carrie Lab, China's satrap in Hong Kong, discovered she bitterly complained that she'd been sanctioned under the U.S. Global Magnitsky Act and she couldn't use any of her credit cards, even those from Hong Kong banks. And she had to take her salary, 700000 American dollars a year, it came to 5.4 million Hong Kong dollars. She had to take it home in cash. It was cluttering up her house. Well, that gave her victims, deprived of democracy, a good laugh on social media. But it does demonstrate the need for sanctions regimes to be coordinated with the US, which has so far sanctioned about 250 individuals and companies. I've studied the record. It's quite good. Some sanctions have been imposed prematurely and some have been imposed for reasons more of foreign policy than proof of human rights violations. But the State Department has a thousand officials working in this area. It invites nominations from human rights body and bodies, and under Trump, as well as Obama, the sanctions for the most part have been justified. Of course, we had the irresponsible and indeed reprehensible sanctions on ICC prosecutors because they were investigating American and Israeli war crimes. Those sanctions weren't imposed under Magnitsky laws, but under so-called emergency legislation. Biden is expected to lift them, but Trump may come again in 2024, but by that time we will hopefully have a Magnitsky network in place, or even a convention, and uh, be able to have a consensus view or an independent expert view on who the target should be. Perhaps the convention, the ostracizing of bad people convention, as the Romans knew. Ostracism is uh, a form of punishment, not as serious as jail, but nonetheless. So here we are at a time when Putin declares liberal democracy is obsolete. We have a project for the global justice movement to use national laws to name, blame and shame violators using international law standards. If democracies with desirable banks and schools and hospitals continue to adopt Magnitsky laws, then pool their intelligence and sanctions lists. The pleasures available to the cruel and corrupt might be considerably diminished. They won't go to prison, but they will not be able to access credit 
and spend their profits as and where they want, or travel the world with impunity. And their accomplices in the West may be publicly shamed, lose business, perhaps go to jail for complicity. That's the case in Canada. They, and hopefully their authoritarian masters, may come to recognize that violating human rights is a game not worth the candle. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Thank you uh, very much, uh, Jeffrey. That's given us a lot to uh, think about and talk about. Before we move to a discussion uh, Bill, we'd love to hear your perspective and in particular your efforts to try to get more countries to adopt these kinds of laws and and perhaps you could highlight what you see as the success stories so far and the most important next steps that you think should be taken. Well, first of all, I want to say that I'm very honoured to be here with two of the uh, most articulate advocates for the Magnitsky Act around the world, Jeffrey Robertson and Amal Clooney. Both of them have been arguing in front of different parliaments about the virtue of Magnitsky Acts. We were all together in front of the Australian Parliament recently and various other parliaments around the world, and it is a great honor and and a wonderful thing to have um, two such talented people involved in this righteous mission. I should also point out that um, while we're talking policy here, there is a commercial purpose to this whole thing, which is Jeffrey's book. Maybe, Amal, you could hold up the cover it's called Bad People. Here, here we go. Jeffrey's got it right there. It's called Bad People, How to Be Rid of Them. And I, I've read the book. I read an early copy. It's a great book. Um, Jeffrey's a great writer. And um, I urge every person on this call to go on to Amazon and buy your copy today because it's very important. It's important read, and it's an important part of, of uh, what Jeffrey has just described. I thought I'd just take in my time, a couple of minutes to tell Sergei's story and how it's led to this global Magnitsky movement. For those of you who don't know me, I was, uh, I'm was i not a, a human rights lawyer like uh, Jeffrey and Amal. I'm a former uh, financier. I ran a, a large investment fund in Russia. My investment fund, um, uh, part of the strategy was to uncover corruption in large Russian companies and expose it. As you can imagine, that upset a lot of people in Russia. I was expelled from Russia and declared a threat to national security. My offices in Russia were subsequently raided by a number of police officers. Those police officers seized a bunch of documents, and those documents were used in a highly complex $230 million tax rebate fraud in which they stole $230 million of taxes that my firm had paid to the Russian government. 
I hired a young lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, to investigate and figure out what was going on. He was the person who uncovered the fraud. He, he was the person who then testified against the officials and corrupt police officers involved in the fraud. And in retaliation to his testimony, as Jeffrey mentioned, he was arrested by the same officials he testified against. He was put in pretrial detention. He was then tortured to get him to withdraw his testimony. They put him in cells with 14 inmates and eight beds and left lights on 24 hours a day to impose sleep deprivation. They put him in cells with no heat and no window panes in December in Moscow, so nearly froze to death. They put him in cells with no toilet, just a hole in the floor where the sewage would bubble up. They did this to him to try to get him to recant his testimony and to get him to sign a false confession. And they figured, here is a white-collar lawyer working for a fancy American law firm. He'll buckle in a week. And they totally misjudged Sergei Magnitsky, who's, who, for the, the idea of perjuring himself and bearing false witness, was worse than the physical torture they were subjecting him to. And he refused. The torture got worse and worse. He ended up uh, losing 20 kilos, developing terrible pains in his stomach, and, and um, being diagnosed with pancreatitis, which required an operation. A week before the operation, they again came to him, again asked him to sign a false confession. Again, he refused. In retaliation, they abruptly moved him to the, one of the roughest, most awful prisons in Moscow, a prison called Butyrka, where uh, most significantly for Sergei, there was no proper medical wing. At Butyrka, his health completely broke down. He went into constant agonizing pain. His lawyers wrote 20 different requests, desperate requests for medical attention. All of those requests were either um, ignored or denied in writing. And on the night of November 16, 2009, uh, 11 years ago, more than 11 years ago, Sergei Magnitsky went into critical condition. On that night, the Butyrka authorities didn't want to have responsibility for him anymore. They put him in an ambulance, sent him to a different prison that had a medical wing. But when he arrived there, instead of putting him in the emergency room, they put him in an isolation cell. They chained him to a bed and eight riot guards with rubber batons beat him until he died. He was 37 years old. He left a wife and two children. When I got the news of his murder the next day, it was the most traumatizing, heartbreaking, life-changing news I could have ever gotten. And after I got through the moments of hysteria to be able to think clearly. Um, I, I had only one choice, which was to put aside everything else I was doing. And I made a vow to his memory, to his family, to myself, that I was going to go after the people that killed him and make sure they faced justice. Well, I started to look for how we could get justice. And I should point out that we had a, a mountain of evidence. Sergei wrote everything down in the form of 450 complaints during his 358 days in detention. And from this mountain of evidence, um, it was an open and shut case as to who did what to him, where, how, and when. But the Russian authorities completely circled the wagons. They gave promotions and state honors to the people who were most complicit. They even put Sergei Magnitsky himself on trial, in the first ever trial against a dead man in the history of Russia. And so I said, if we can't get justice for Sergei inside of Russia, we need to get justice for him outside of Russia. And this is where I bumped into the same thing that Jeffrey has referred to, uh, uh, the uh, ineffectiveness of Plan A. So I came at it from a different angle, which was, okay, I'm not a lawyer, so what are the legal mechanisms that you can use in a situation like this? Everybody said, go to the European Court for Human Rights. And so we did. Um, the European Court for Human Rights doesn't issue judgments against individuals. It issues judgments against the country. It took Russia... Um, uh, it, took, actually, it took the court, uh, I think, eight years to adjudicate the case. They awarded the family something like 50,000 euros, and they still haven't paid them. Um, the um, Go to the International Criminal Court, some people said. I went to the chief justice of the International Criminal Court, and he said, that's a terrible story about Sergei, but unfortunately, we need uh, 100,000 dead, not one dead. How about universal jurisdiction? This is a concept of law that you can prosecute a crime in, in a, another country for a crime that was committed in a different country if it was so heinous. Well, I looked into universal jurisdiction and I discovered that effectively it doesn't work. Um, it works very, very rarely and it's not something that could be applied in this case. And so then I said, if we can't, if we have no me mechanisms for justice, then we need to invent one. And I looked at the crime that Sergei had uncovered 
and it was about money. He uncovered a $230 million tax refraud, refund fraud. And those people who stole the money don't keep it in Russia. They keep it in the West because as easily as it was, they stole it, it could be stolen from them. They keep their money in, in British banks. They buy villas on the French Riviera. They, they send their girlfriends on shopping trips to Milan, their kids to boarding schools in England and Switzerland. And I came up with this idea, which was that if we can freeze their assets and ban their visas, that's not justice for torture and murder, but it's much, much better than total impunity. And as Jeffrey said, I took this idea to Washington and I presented it to Senator Benjamin Cardin, a Democrat from Maryland, and Senator John McCain, a Republican from Arizona. And I said, can we freeze the assets and ban the visas of the people who killed Sergei Magnitsky? And they said, yes. And that became known as the Magnitsky Act. At first, it just applied to Sergei Magnitsky. Um, and when they put it on the law books, their phones started ringing from other victims in Russia saying, you found the Achilles heel of the Putin regime. Can you sanction the people who killed my husband, my brother, my sister, my aunt? And after about a dozen of these calls, these two senators realized that they were onto something much bigger than Sergei Magnitsky, and they widened it to apply to all Russian human rights abusers. This is one of the few things where partisanship didn't come into it. It went for a vote, and it passed 92 to 4 in the Senate, 89% of the House of Representatives, and it became a federal law on December 14, 2012. Vladimir Putin went crazy. He banned the adoption of Russian orphans by American families. He made it his single largest foreign policy priority to repeal the Magnitsky Act. And so these two senators said, well, if Vladimir Putin is getting so upset, then we should apply it to other dictators. And that became the genesis of the Global Magnitsky Act. The Global Magnitsky Act was passed in December of 2015. And since then, Canada passed a Magnitsky Act. Britain passed a Magnitsky Act. As Jeffrey mentioned, the European Union passed a Magnitsky Act in December of last year. And actually one more to the list, Kosovo passed a Magnitsky Act as well. If you add up all the countries that have a Magnitsky Act, there are 31 countries. On deck, we have Australia, which I think is probably the next one, next country to pass the Magnitsky Act. I, knew, I think New Zealand will, will follow quickly after that. Japan is also, Japanese parliament's also considering a Magnitsky Act. And Taiwan parliament is also considering a Magnitsky Act. I should point out that when, when a person is added to the Magnitsky list, their financial lives are destroyed. They become a financial leper in the world. Nobody, no bank wants to do business with them. As Jeffrey mentioned, Carrie Lam has to keep her money in shoeboxes because no bank will bank with her. And it truly is a devastating, is a devastating, uh, uh, a devastating punishment for anyone who's put on the Magnitsky list. But it's not just those who are sanctioned. It also creates a reign of terror for everybody else who isn't sanctioned, who think that they could be sanctioned. And I would argue that that feeling of terror, which used to be a feeling of impunity, is what's most valuable about the Magnitsky Act. Because the point of this is not so much to punish, but to prevent future deaths. And if enough people out there feel that, that they could have their lives ruined by committing these acts, then perhaps some of them will reconsider when they're asked to do something horrible. I'll never be able to bring back Sergei Magnitsky. And for me, that's a terrible burden I'm going to have to live with for the rest of my life. But hopefully his, his sacrifice will save many lives in the future. And for that, he has a, a beautiful and amazing legacy. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for that uh, moving um, and informative contribution. I'd like to ask you both a couple of questions. And Jeff, to start with you, uh, we're going to focus on your plan B proposal. But before we get to plan B, I just want to understand your perspective on plan A. Why has it failed? Uh, you mentioned the Security Council, but is it just the fact that the Security Council can't, you know, we know there's 123 state parties to the International Criminal Court. The, the Security Council could obviously do more to fill the, the gap in jurisdiction. But in terms of uh, propping up plan A, what do you think is needed? Is it Security Council reform? Is it ICC reform, both or something else? Well, Richard Goldstone has just done a long report of the failings of the International Criminal Court and suggested a, a lot of reforms that I won't go into. But that is certainly 
one side of it, to speed it up. You can't have 10-year trials and then four-year appeals or whatever. It's uh, that problem of international justice, and that's a problem for all international courts. Uh, Yes, it's been uh, criticised for concentrating on Africa. I don't think that criticism is particularly valid because African countries have asked it in. And uh, it has a couple of cases that it shouldn't have taken. The Kenyan prosecutions, I think, were a bad idea to begin with. Politics, world politics, and Kofi Annan drove them. But it was not really a good idea. And uh, Ruto and... uh, they're all going back to their countries after being acquitted and wearing it as a badge of honour. So I think that there have been those problems. But essentially, the problem is that the Security Council will not refer to the ICC prosecutor any situation which attracts the attention of one of the five big powers. Um, said Russia declined, uh, threatened to veto Britain whenever it tries to refer the Syrian situation. And so that is, is, I'm afraid, a permanent block. The big five, the veto in the Security Council, because that's necessary. If you don't, if you have an atrocity, if you have genocide in a country, which uh, hasn't signed up to the ICC treaty, which is where genocides generally occur, then it needs the Security Council to direct the prosecutor. They did with Darfur, but they haven't ever since 2011. I think the last time there was unanimity on the Security Council was over Gaddafi, who had alienated everyone. Some, I know uh, Bill uh, said that in his experience, universal jurisdiction, so having accountability in a national court wasn't the solution. But we are seeing in trials in Germany, I've been involved, for example, for years in advocacy on behalf of Yazidi victims of genocide committed by ISIS. And although advocacy to persuade the UN Security Council went as far as to um get the establishment of an investigation commission that's on the ground in Iraq. There has been no international court created to to put uh, ISIS on trial. But we are seeing cases in German courts, including for the crime of genocide. Mm. Sticking again with plan A for for just a moment, do you think that the future of accountability for international crimes is in national courts? Yes, I think it's very heartening to see occasionally that someone will be arrested while out shopping in Frankfurt. This is, they'll be recognised by some asylum seeker who suddenly says, that's the guy who tortured me. There was a case the other day in Sweden where one of the torturers in the 1988 prison killings in Iran was picked up. He'd come to Sweden to visit a girlfriend. And uh, he was recognized as the guy who would go up in the amphitheater and pull down the legs of people six at a time who were dangling at the end of ropes. So that's that's good, but it doesn't happen very often. It's a catch-as-catch-can process, and not many people are caught. So I'm in favor of keeping the ICC and improving it, uh, and in fact, keeping universal jurisdiction. But we can't expect that these, as Bill's example shows, are going to serve in important cases and that that we need to do something about. Mm Thank you. I'm going to open it up to both of you and move to uh, the discussion of sanctions. So I I agree in my own experience as an advocate, sometimes uh, targeted sanctions are certainly an effective tool in the toolbox. Sadly, they are sometimes the only enforcement tool in the toolbox. And I've certainly seen examples myself where they have been effective, uh, not only in creating a reign of terror bill, as, as you put it, but actually in affecting policy change or reversing uh, a, a, you know, a step that led to somebody's arbitrary detention, for instance. But when, when, when looking at the way sanctions work now globally, oh, clearly one of the problems is 
that there can be just soft targets um, and also that sometimes there are the wrong targets. You gave the ICC prosecutor being sanctioned as an example. We've seen this kind of tit for tat in the in the uh, um, some of the examples that you both gave. Uh, and uh, Jeffrey, you're right. So I sit on the Newberger panel um, for the protection of journalists, and we said one of the ways to limit the risk of of pure executive discretion based on policy rather than um, severity of violations is to outsource some of the decision making to an independent panel. How do you think this could work? Is has this been done anywhere successfully? And and what other steps? I think you also mentioned in the book kind of safety in numbers. If there is more than one state acting, um, that also reduces this sort of uh, uh, potentially sort of policy-based discretion. Can you just elaborate on how we deal with that one fundamental potential flaw in the system? Yeah, I don't think soft targets are necessarily wrong. The soft targets that where its work was to stop Ugandan MPs passing the death sentence for, for gay men. Uh, and in your case, in uh, the Maldives, in uh, rehabilitating President Nasheed. So, all right, they're, they're small countries, they're amenable, but it's useful nonetheless to threaten sanctions if it saves lives and saves democratic leaders. I think as to other cases, it, as I've said, targeted sanctions do cause worries even to the very top. You've seen the way Putin has reacted, the way China has reacted, and that's an indication that they do have an effect. And we'll see as I think we get a more agreement between countries as there is not necessarily a foreign policy driving of these sanctions, if we can get to an independent human rights situation. The Australian Parliament report was actually very good. They wanted a committee that was chaired by a judge with a few human rights experts, and they wanted Human Rights Watch and Amnesty and so forth to make submissions to it. They wanted it heard in public and uh, they would submit to the minister. The minister obviously would not have to accept. She would consider the national security interests, the trade, and so forth. That would, But by being public, people would know and hold her to account. And they also suggested, and I think this may be important for NGOs here to press for, parliamentary surveillance. There ought to be a committee, a parliamentary committee that can question the Foreign Office about it. After all, the Foreign Office opposed this tooth and nail behind the scenes. They didn't want a Magnitsky law because it embarrasses their diplomats, they prioritise trade. And uh, so they've got to be, now we've got one, they've beat, have got to be held to the fire. And the way to do that may be to have a report regularly to a parliamentary committee. But I do think that the idea of an independent body sending recommendations and transparency, which is something that to an extent America has, but we don't, is important. Bill, perhaps a, a question for you. I'm happy for you to comment on that. I was also going to ask you whether a Bitcoin or uh, other <laughs> currencies are going to be a workaround uh, for potential targets. In theory, absolutely. Bitcoin is a workaround not just for for this, but for, for all money laundering regulations. And I think the one thing that all the Bitcoin enthusiasts kind of aren't paying attention to is, is the fact that uh, no reasonable government can allow money launderers to, you know, right now, if you want to take out more than $10,000 of cash from your bank, you've got to come and like fill out a form and, and provide a reasonable excuse for why you want $10,000 and they scrutinize you. And if, if they provide you with that money and it turns out you're a bad guy, they can get into trouble. But you can move $10 million with Bitcoin without anybody looking over your shoulder. And I can absolutely guarantee you that in five years time, that's not going to be the case because it completely destroys all money laundering regulations and it destroys the um, power of sanctions and other 
kinds of monetary policy. And so anybody who's thinking that Bitcoin is never going to be regulated, I can easily imagine a scenario where the United States and the EU and various other people do exactly what the Indian government has done recently, which is just to say that um, cryptocurrencies are against owning cryptocurrencies are against the law. I just wanted to comment quickly on on the on the previous point uh, to say a couple things. First of all, in terms of getting an independent body to force the government to sank to do Magnitsky sanctions, that sounds like a beautiful idea. But having been at the coalface of trying to get parliaments and governments to do Magnitsky sanctions, it's never going to happen. The the governments always want to have the discretion about who to sanction and who not to sanction. And we were really worried in the United States when the Global Magnitsky Act was being put in place because there was one word that was different from the Russian Magnitsky Act. And that one word was, in the, in the Russian Magnitsky Act, it said the president shall sanction people who do terrible things. And in the Global Magnitsky Act, it said the president may sanction the person that do, does terrible things. And we were so upset by this language, and we thought the moment it passed that it was just going to be some kind of like symbolic law in the books that was never used. And and I could have never imagined that, that you would have, uh, at this point, more than 250 people and entities sanctioned on this President May thing. And what seems to have happened is is the U.S., and I think other governments are now cottoning on to this, have understood that in a world where you don't want to go to war, where you want to continue to conduct diplomatic relations and trade relations, and at the same time, you, you don't want to condone some terrible atrocities like what's going on with the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, the Magnitsky sanctions are an absolutely appropriate, perfect tool for, for doing that. And and in terms of getting people sanctioned, um, there, there's an organization in the U.S. called Human Rights First, which which was until very recently staffed by the, the person who had previously worked in the State Department sanctioning people. He, he went to Human Rights First, and, and they started collecting evidence from victims all over the world and, and then submitting it in a proper format. And they were responsible for, for a third of all people sanctioned by the United States. And so I think it is really possible. And it's, I think this uh, redress, which is a, an NGO in the UK, is now about to start doing the same thing here. And I think it is, is, is entirely possible for NGOs um, to work with governments. And it's never going to be perfect, but to work with to governments with governments to, to provide some effective evidence to get people sanctioned. I want to move to a question. You also mentioned China. And we actually have a question from uh, Baroness Helena Kennedy, QC, who is not only an expert in this field, but now also herself a sanctionee uh, of China, which last month imposed sanctions on nine uh, UK individuals who, uh, quote, maliciously spread lies and disinformation, according to the authorities, in relation to, quote, so-called human rights issues in Xinjiang. Uh, Helena asks the following question for both of you. Our government seems afraid to use sanctions against the big guys like MBS for the killing of Khashoggi and failing to target Putin's oligarchs over Navalny. It did not target the governor of Xinjiang province, but just a few middle ranking officials. Is there a risk that targeted sanctions will become a tit for tat exercise rather than the powerful action we hope for? Of course, there's a risk. But we've got to remember that we've only had sanctions in the UK available for eight months and uh, in European Union for three months. So it's early days yet. Of course, MBS is Magnitsky proof, it would seem. But uh, certainly Britain, which unveiled the sanctions against 16 of the team that killed Khashoggi, but not MBS, who obviously gave the order. But the next day, Mr. Rabb announced four billion pounds worth of arms sales to Saudi Arabia. And that is the trade-off for they'll be used in that terrible war with the Houthis. And uh, we, we got our trade and we didn't sanction MBS. Interestingly enough, the Americans came very close. Trump told Bob Woodward, I saved his ass. And he saved his ass from a Magnitsky sanction, which would have led to further trade difficulties. So I think the, the days are early and pressure has to be put 
on the Foreign Office to go higher, to think higher, to, to target the oligarchs. The Euro European Union must take that step. And as for China, well, it's, uh, I think it was America. Britain rather meekly put sanctions on four middle-ranking people. But America went for the jugular. It went for the Politburo chief who's responsible for Xinjiang province. It went for the parastatal company that's selling all the slave labor cotton and will be selling it to no one other than Hugo Boss in the future. I'll just chime in really quickly and, and say that that the if you look at the um, U.S. global Magnitsky sanctions list, um, it's a really a, a rogues gallery of, of bad, bad people. They've sanctioned the Guptas in South Africa who robbed that country blind. They've sanctioned Dan Gertler, who's responsible for terrible corruption in, in Central Africa. They, they, uh, they've sanctioned all sorts of really bad guys. And so I, I, I think it's, it's, I think by any objective measure, sure, they haven't gone after MBS and, and I'd be the first to say that that's a, terrible travesty. But I, I would give them a sort of eight and a half out of 10 in terms of the people who they have sanctioned. And there's a lot of really evil people on that list. Well, should we go after Sheikh Maktoum, whom a British judge found kidnapped his two daughters, one of them from Cambridge, and uh, is holding them in unlawful custody for years? That would mean perhaps freezing his assets in Newmarket, all his horses, and stopping him from going to meet his friend the Queen. Uh, it gets difficult, and that's the point at which the FO will fight not to embarrass our friends and our trade, trading relations. That's where human rights needs to have priority over trade. It won't, I suspect, for quite a while. I'm going to ask one last question and I'm going to try and sort of bring together the re remaining one from the audience because there is a common thread. And essentially one person anonymous asks, you know, is China the unresolvable situation? Another one asks, you know, wh what impact can, can such things have in Russia itself? And, and potentially people are also looking at Myanmar now and seeing that sanctions have been imposed in relation to Myanmar, but not clear what the impact is. Are there states where sanctions or situations where sanctions won't work? And in, and in those cases, do we need a plan C? Well, why, why don't I go in there? You, you finish up at the very end, Jeffrey, just since you're, this is your book. Any country that is heavily involved in foreign investment and foreign trade, where there's rich people from that country, will be highly susceptible to Magnitsky sanctions. And it, we don't need a plan C. We just need to roll out Magnitsky sanctions more. It should become a, almost a pedestrian exercise where nobody even other than the government and the people being sanctioned pay attention because it happens so often when they're, when these things, when terrible things are being done. And I think that, that, that the Magnitsky movement, and I should point out that, that the, with the, you know, the Xinjiang, this was the first time that everybody got together. China, I mean, it got together U.S., Canada, U.K., and EU, and all sanctioned together. And I think there's going to be Magnitsky summits in the future where all the countries discuss and coordinate and harmonize, and and that will have a very powerful effect. And so, as Jeffrey said, it's early days. This this movement is just getting going, and I think it's going to be something very, very powerful. But, Jeffrey, I'll leave you with the last word. Well, I tend to think that authoritarian government, what follows is corruption at the top. I've seen it in the Revolutionary Guards in Iran. You can see it in the Burmese generals slowly, and you can see it even in China, although China tends to <laughs> allow its people to uh, be more corrupt overseas than in China itself. But wait and see about Burma. There are links there. I think that China's response is very interesting, isn't it? The intelligent response to those sanctions would be to laugh it off, to do nothing. But that's not how these people react. They've gone overboard and sanctioned right, left and centre themselves. And I think that is because they are hurt. They've hurt in their profits. The parastatal that is selling the cotton now has very few profits. I think that that is something, and, and of course, there is a loss 
in other respects in the way they're regarded in the world. So give it time. And I think this is the way in, and perhaps the only way in, to authoritarian countries who currently hold the majority of people in the world uh, in some form of oppression. Well, thank you for leaving us with a reason for optimism. Hopefully that relates to both Plan B and uh, indeed Plan A, which I don't think we should be giving up on. Um, for those of you who would like to read Jeffrey's book, I highly recommend it. I, it's a, a learning experience and manages to be entertaining along the way, despite the subject matter. The book is available at Primrose Hill Books. You can buy it on Amazon. It's on uh, Apple Books uh, and, and other ebook platforms. Um, uh, so I hope you'll, I hope you'll buy it and enjoy it. Um, and just want to thank, uh, the organizers, uh, Darcy Street Chambers and also Intelligence Squared for bringing us uh, together for the event. And thank you so much to both panelists, uh, Jeffrey and Bill. Uh, many thanks. And I wish everybody a good evening. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.